welcome to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. Louise Moorish is a historical fiction writer and librarian from Hampshire. Her debut novel, Operation Moonlight, is inspired by the extraordinary adventures of the female secret agents of the Special Operations Executive. Welcome to the podcast, Louise. Or okay. Luz, as I'm actually Lou. going to call you. <laughs> yes, <it's> Lou. <laughs> Louise sounds very formal. <laughs> Welcome, Lou. Oh, thank you, Kate. This is such an honour to be on your podcast. Oh, I'm very no, excited. my pleasure. I am absolutely loving, as an author, interviewing other authors, because if nothing else, I get loads of great tips and, you know, tips of the trade and see what works for you. It's It's a fascinating insight to see how other authors work. But you're a bit different, actually, because you're the first person I've had on that is a librarian and a writer which I find fascinating. And so it leads me to my first question, actually, is what came first, the longing to be a librarian or a writer? Well, I've been a librarian for 30 years now, nearly. I've been writing for about the same length of time, I would say. But for too many years to count, I never, ever thought of myself as being a writer. You know, I was a librarian but you know other people strange magical people produce books that I was shelving you know a different breed of people so you so, never dared to imagine that what no, you were shelving I read it, I, I wrote it you in, might shelve your own book yeah no absolute dream but one of those dreams that it was never gonna happen <laughs> it's never gonna happen and why was that do you think why I I, I mean I'm laughing because I I share the same story I never imagined that I would ever write books you know that was for people that were Oxbridge educated and you know had degrees and and were significantly brighter than me of course I I realize now that isn't a prerequisite for writing a book but back then I felt I felt that it was just unobtainable why did you feel that you would never be a writer uh well I was writing in secret but I didn't ever think I would be published and I think there's a little bit of a difference there in in that I was writing stories not with any thought that I would actually be published but I would but I would be shelving these books and thinking there's this wall this this invisible wall between my life and this strange publishing life and it's so I mean back I'm talking sort of pre-internet days or very early internet mm. days I think we we're, we're much more aware now of the publishing industry and we can google stuff and we're you know, social media, we're aware of mm. a lot more of what's go, 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 what goes on. But I'm talking about, you know, 20 years ago when, you know, it was just this strange world that was populated by people that, like you say, went to Oxbridge or knew people in the publishing industry. I knew nobody, nobody at uh, all. I do want to know how you, you did actually break through that wall, as you as you describe it. That's such a, quite a good description, actually, because it does feel like quite a shadowy, closed off world. And I, I know lots of people want to know how you you access that. But can we just talk a little bit first about the library um, and your library career? What was how did you become a librarian? When I was 16, I did work experience at Guildford Library <laughs> and they were actually closed for refurbishments during my time when I was doing the doing my work experience. So I didn't actually do any librarianship. I was just moving boxes of books around. But so from the, from you know, as, as young as 16, I knew that I wanted to be something in books, do something in books. But publishing was for posh people who worked and lived in London beyond my, you know, ability. And then I did a, I went to university, I got a degree in philosophy and law and, and had a, a, a few parts, a few jobs that were just definitely not for me. And it got, to, I got to about nearly 20 and I, 22. And I thought to myself, well, I'm really miserable in the jobs I'm doing. What do I actually really love? And I love books. I mean, almost almost more than people, most people. I don't mind admitting that. <laughs> That's I entirely understandable. The older you get, the more um, you like books and animals. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I just want to work with books. So I went and I got a job at Weybridge Library first off. And I never stopped from there. So I've worked in all sorts of public libraries. I've worked in private literary collections. Uh, I've worked in primary school libraries, secondary school libraries. I've had three children. So, of course, moving into school libraries worked in terms of my children's schooling, being able to pick them up, Mm. drop them off at school or that kind of thing. I've worked in a haunted library before now. (gasps) Okay, I'm going to have to stop and ask you about that. (laughs) (laughs) We're not moving past that one. (laughs) Where was the haunted library? (laughs) Oh, so it's a place 
not far from from Alton in Odium, and I th I think it's actually now unfortunately I think it's closed. It was a very small community library that used to be an 18th century prison for French prisoners of war, and it was also a courthouse a long, long time ago, several hundred years ago. So it's got a real history to it, this place. But it's it was very small, and you had to. It was a single man, single man job. So you you rock up and you do your shift completely on your own. And people would come in, obviously, in dribs and drabs and take books out and you'd have little chats with people. But for some of the time, you were completely on your own. And it didn't, although I am an introvert, self, you know, I don't mind admitting that I am an introvert. I have no problem being on my own at all. In fact, I need to be on my own quite a lot. This was a wholly different kettle of fish and there was a definite ambience to this place. And there were definitely odd things that happened. Items got moved and they couldn't have been moved. Doors would be open when you'd close them. Taps would be turned on. And I'd feel like I was being watched. There were strange holes in the ceiling. And I think the attic part or the roof part of this of this um, building used to be, that I don't know, it just had spy holes in the ceiling and it would feel like I was being watched. And yeah, just odd sort of, um, I didn't actually see a physical... Being got the sense that you were not but, alone. Um, that, there were definitely oh, Lou, that's so, yeah, that's so weird. And did you believe in the afterlife before you worked in that library, or did working at library make you think, you know what, <laughs> it could I'm not, be? I'm not sure I believe in the afterlife, but I do believe in. I do believe that we don't know. Yeah, hardly anything about what goes on after we die, and. That, that buildings can retain yeah. something of what's gone in the past. And it had a very um, a very mixed history to it. There were some yeah. very troubling I, things. I totally agree. I think when you get really old buildings, almost like the fabric of the building absorbs almost the emotions and the lives that went on there. So if people lived happy lives in a place, you get, I, I get a sense of that. If, if people lived disturbed or there was troubling or turbulent or traumatic happenings in a place I think it soaks into the the very being of a building and I think if you're sensitive to that you can absorb it and you can feel it yeah I'm very much of the opinion that if you believe in ghosts and you're waiting to see one you won't see one but if you are just going about your business <laughs> which I was stuff was happening and I was yeah. thinking oh my gosh you were know. you tempted because obviously you're interested in history you've written a historical fiction novel were you tempted to research the the sort of history of that particular library and find out what happened there I did a little bit of research but not a lot but actually thinking about it it would make a really good set for you know I could use it in a future novel or a future story I was story. just thinking not, as you were talking not naming it but yeah I hadn't actually occurred to me until I spoke to you about it that yeah, I could do. I for I one would love to read a novel set in a haunted library. Yeah. And yeah, then have I like don't... a time hop so you could go back to the sort of 18th century and the lives and then the librarian in the 21st century. A little bit okay. outlander. Well, there you, know, you go. There's your next novel for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so you, you're no longer in the haunted library, but you do work in a school library now, don't you? Yes, I do. And you love it. I love it. It's the best job I've ever done. And I would never have thought that before I got the job. Why? I never I never thought once I'd left secondary school and I didn't have a great time at secondary school at all. Mm -hmm. Academically all was okay, but you know, it was back in the 80s and the 90s when there was no accountability for teachers. There you were a number, you were left to your own devices, there was no proper testing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I got my A levels. I really don't. Um, we went, I think I had about 15 different teachers during my A-level years. So God knows how I managed to pass those. So when I left secondary school, I vowed I would never set foot in another one again. And actually, when my children got to secondary school age, I wasn't working at that point in a secondary school library. And I was seriously worried for them because all I had were my own memories. Yeah, of secondary yeah, school. yeah, of course. So I was I was I was trying not to reflect my anxiety onto my children who had a much better experience of secondary school, I have to say, than I ever did. Mm. But then when my children were when my youngest when my twins were in year seven year eight something like that I got the job at their secondary school managing their library it was a learning curve and it was quite terrifying to start with because I mean large groups of teenagers are very intimidating mm, they yeah, really are and if course. you don't know them 
they really are can be very intimidating and it is a it sometimes can be a tricky tricky situation to navigate um for lots and lots of different reasons and some things have not changed at all and some things are wholly different to when we were at school but quite quickly quite quickly i i got to know the children and once i knew them it transformed my my whole existence there and they are the most wonderful people young teenagers once you just you you need to show respect to them and they will show respect to you and i i have created a, a, a wondrous sanctuary and it's about to be refurbed actually this year we've got a uh, £20,000 refurbishment budget so it's going to be completely refurbished over the summer holidays and we're going to go back to this brand spanking new library which is going to be really modern and wonderful but I mean I'm, I'm working at the moment or I have been working with a very old very dated not Edwardian but you're, you're talking dated furniture dated shelving mm-hmm. but that doesn't matter I've it doesn't matter because it's what you bring to it and yeah. I've stocked it with brand new books and we do competitions and incentives and clubs we do manga club ink drinker writing group we do summer takeaway reads which I've, I've been putting on some um, social media just this week yeah the, and they do library lessons the children do library lessons so I get to talk about new books we have author visits we have book fairs oh. I can't, you know I don't what? think I, love... I could do much more. <laughs> no, and I love the way that you describe it as a sanctuary. They're very lucky, these children, to have such a passionate school librarian. And am I right in thinking, Lou, that there's no statutory requirement for schools to have libraries, which when you consider that it is a statutory requirement for a prison to have a library and yet not a school, you've got to wonder where we're going wrong. That seems so wrong to me that it sh- every school should have a library it should be the bedrock of every single child's education to have access to free books it really should because it's been scientifically proven and with lots of surveys um the name of the people will come to me it's left me at the moment but there are there's been legitimate studies done which show that children who read for pleasure do better across the board Mm -hmm. not just in English across the whole curriculum and it opens up the world for them if children don't read for pleasure they're not practicing reading they're not very good at it and things go awry and yes you've got children that have dyslexia and have issues with reading uh, which we cater for slightly differently but for the majority of children who don't have a problem with reading if they don't read for pleasure if they simply read when they're told to there's a definite difference between their ability and their achievements to, uh, as, as, a, as opposed to children who do read for pleasure. So my library and my whole job is, I mean, I can't believe how lucky I am. My single remit from the school is to ignite the love of reading in children. Yeah however I want to do it and yes we're restricted by budgets unfortunately but if I have an idea that I think will work I'm allowed to do it yeah and that's my whole job is to, is to make sure that the right book is in front of the right child yeah get them going and and yeah so you're a little most bit like a sort of locksmith each child is a is a like has a key and you just need to work out how to turn it because yes. I, I do remember interviewing another school librarian and she said to me, there's no such thing as a child that doesn't like reading, just a child that hasn't discovered the right book. And I really believe that as well. I think it's not a case of, I just don't like reading. You've just got to find the right author or the right genre to set that fire going. I've found over the years that I've worked there, we've built up our manga section <clears throat> quite extensively. Now, I don't like manga. I can't read it. It gives me a migraine. <laughs> it really does. But that plays to my advantage because a a great swathe of kids, uh, quite rightly, don't want to take my recommendations. You know, I'm a white, middle class, middle aged woman, and they don't particularly rate what I think might be a really good book. So when I show them the manga, which is a section that's a whole section on its own in the library, and I say to them, I can't read this because I'm a bit too old I can't work it out but apparently it's really good and there's all this anime on the television which kids are watching all the time they absolutely jump on it and because it's a bit subversive I'm going to be very careful what manga I stock don't get me wrong because there's a whole you know manga is actually an adult genre in Japan and it's you have to be really careful what you stock in the school library but for them for the most part they, they just absolutely love it and a lot of children who struggle to read just somehow get manga and love it wow. so manga that's so interesting surprise my my secret weapon 
weapon. It's my yeah. secret weapon. If I've got a very reluctant reader who's possibly a bit dyslexic, hasn't been diagnosed, doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to, I whip out the manga and they're like suddenly, oh, okay. It's not really reading. Is. <laughs> doesn't matter it's words on a page and if it yeah. draws them in and then you know if they once they've read that they might graduate up to to other books that's fascinating so what what's the biggest joy of being a librarian in any library whether it be a you know municipal public library or a school library or a haunted library what's the biggest joy about being around books is it that moment where you make that connection with somebody who you know then suddenly they're fired up and and sharing that love of books what for you gives you the most happiness I think igniting the love of reading in the children in my present day job is possibly the biggest joy when a child takes a book and then comes back to you and says miss this was actually really good have you got the rest in the series yep I have here you go that just make my heart sings I think, there you go, I've unlocked a door for you, off you go. That gives me a great deal of joy. My job is so varied, so varied. Every day is different. And a big, big part of my job is what I would class as bibliotherapy. I'm matching the book to the child on an individual basis. And I'm listening and I'm, I'm looking at that child. I'm finding out what they do or don't do out of school. I'm looking at their general demeanor, their worries their happiness or whatever with my knowledge now of of children's literature I can generally find the right book within within a 10 minute conversation with a child and through the books also I do a lot of small group intervention work and the issues that are brought up with the books then quite often unlocks lots of conversations lots of sharing of sometimes quite emotional stuff if you like Mm. that that without the books that the that child would keep trapped inside them yeah just unlocking that's unlocking. so interesting because if it's bibliotherapy you are a bibliotherapist in a way mm. aren't you you're mm. the sort of medic dispensing medicine and the me- and the book is the medicine isn't it it's a way of opening conversations and I spend a lot of time with children who have no other safe place to go in the school have no friends to play with perhaps um don't want to be in the groups that they're supposed to be in are quite often it's children that are brought to the library because they can't cope with the class situation so they they come and they do their work Mm. in the library it's just something about the the room we've got two rooms actually but there's just something about being surrounded by books that just brings your cortisol levels down brings your adrenaline levels down I talk about this in my library lessons actually I get the children to take their shoes off Taking your shoes off helps as well at the start of a library lesson. You know, I can feel, as you're talking about it, I can feel my heart rate come down. That calm effect of taking your shoes off, grounding yourself, being surrounded by a forest of books. Have blankets. So in the winter, they wrap themselves up in blankets. And I talk to them about how they they, they get it really quickly. But I have to explain to the year sevens, particularly when they've never had library lessons before. It's like, what the hell's going on here? You know, you, you look like you're going to get hot chocolate out in a minute. It's like, I would if I could. But I talk to them about how stressful school is and how as you go through this, your school life into the older years, it will only get worse. The pressure on you will get worse. And so therefore, you have to learn de-stressing actions, de-stressing activities, exercises that can keep you on a level and that reading has been proven to de-stress you and and you, you they, once they get into their book, once you've found their right book, once you've settled everybody, they've got their blankets, they've taken their shoes off. It's like a little 50 minute sanctuary from that hectic school life. And it mm. really is. I mean, take your mind back to secondary school. You've got your oh. shrill, shrill corridor bells. Oh. You've got you've got kids barreling down corridors. You've got teachers not teachers don't really shout anymore but you've got teachers on you and you've got the pressure of homework you've got the pressure of social media for that 50 minutes I say to them you've got no phone issues you've got no homework you've got no teacher breathing down your neck you're in a safe space nothing's going to happen to you in here you can just escape you can break out of school and when I say that to them I say you know get that right book in front of you you can break out of school if I could break you out physically I would but I can't it's illegal so I'm going to do it through the pages of the book there you go and 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 if they can't read if they if they're not that good we put them on an audiobook 
and we let them doodle and draw as they're listening mm. to a, a to a story so you know all all children are catered for regardless yeah. of their ability of reading or not oh yeah. Luke, do you know what as you're talking i so wish that i had you as a school librarian when i was younger at school we were talking a bit about this before we came came on air but i because i had a pretty miserable secondary school experience it was like exactly what i can almost as you're talking it's taking me back there now i can picture those long corridors the kids barreling around you know and just for me being quite introverted, I remember on day one thinking, I have to keep my head down. I have to survive. I have to avoid that group of bullies. I have to do nothing to bring attention to myself. It was quite an ordeal. It was a survival. It was a sort of three, yes. four years survival, which I came out with one GCSE. It was not um, a nurturing environment to be in. But reading was my joy. That was my means of escape from all of that. And I think I dread to think what I'd, what I would have done had I not had reading because coming emerged with one GCSE, the options were not exactly wide open for me. But through reading, through that sanctuary and escape, you know, I love that phrase that you don't just read a book, you you buy into a whole new world. And so I escaped those miserable classrooms <laughs> through the pages of a book. So it's so wonderful and gratifying to hear you saying it. And I sense that it might be slightly cathartic for you having had a similar experience it it does feel like I've gone full circle my confidence levels because I'm so passionate about it and actually quite sometimes quite angry about schools that don't have libraries and people who don't rate the school library with enough importance because I'm quite quietly you know in my librarian way angry um I I'm just fiercely fiercely protective of my library and the kids get that really quick come through my doors you're safe in here if you can't manage that or you want to disrupt that goodbye you go into the school you go into the playground and you do what you have to do out there but in here this is how we behave this is the sanctuary for those kids who who that I call them my fragiles but not all of them are that not some of them are very fragile but not all of them are they're just kids that I'm just really grateful for that. They are grateful, even if they don't fully yeah. understand their, their luck. Yeah. And isn't it sad to think of all those schools that don't have the, the safe space of a school library where kids can go? It still seems as, astonishing to me in this day and age that, that it's not a legal requirement for every school, especially secondary schools, to have a dedicated library and a librarian um, and access to free books. And funnily enough, I was reading, uh, somebody sent me a link yesterday about Dolly Parton and how she's brought about this library of imagination and she's funded millions of free books to kids in America. What an incredible woman. I, <laughs> I had no idea she'd done all that. I was just reading about it yesterday. Um, we could do with someone similar over here doing something like that. We really could. I mean, Marcus Rashford has done a lot. Has he? He's done a lot. The footballer Marcus Rashford. Uh, I haven't heard about him lately, but a few couple of years ago, he was doing a big, big push on literacy for, in ch for children, and he was giving away lots and lots and lots of free books. And he's written some books as well. Yeah, he's and a great he, role model. What a great he man! He is a great role model. And our children's literature scene and the the young adult books that are available are in another universe to when we were at school, Kate. They really, really? are. I mean, the YA literature is something else now that it's so good. Sorry, I was just saying, I remember growing up being quite obsessed with things like Sweet Valley High and, mm. you know, th there wasn't a genre called young adult when I was growing up. No. But I just remember reading about other lives, like so kids in America at high schools there and just being fascinated by the, their way of life and going to proms and milk bars and yeah. You know, yeah. to a kid from Surrey, that seemed like unbelievably yeah. glamorous. But that was about it. I don't really remember much else. So, but you're there absolutely really right now. There's much. a pleasure of YA, and it's incredibly well written, like you say. So they're very lucky kids in, in that sense to have such a wide diversity of choice when it comes to literature. They really are. I mean, I don't know about you, but I almost went from Blyton to Stephen King and James yeah. Herbert. That's a hell of a job. In between. <laughs> Um, you know, reading Stephen King at 12 and it's mm, yeah I'm not allowed to have I remember it I remember reading <laughs> Stephen King at 12 as well I'm thinking whoa this is and it was a leap up from you know Wind in the Willows and yeah. <laughs> flying you know Little Women Stephen King yeah it's <laughs> like quite um, a jump but that, that that isn't the case now it's like oh there's a there's a whole mm, plethora of books mm. something for everybody and of course there's this big manga now um, and the graphic novel scene is huge. You've got amazing 
authors and illustrators, Raina Telgemeier. Um, oh God, so many, so many. That's so heartening to hear. But what do you think is the future of libraries on a more general sense, like, you know, public libraries? Because they seem, we seem to have re, I suppose COVID probably brought it to a head in a sense, but it, it strikes me, having interviewed so many librarians now, that a lot of it is just down to what funding and support you get from your local council. If you're well supported and well funded, there's no end to what a library can achieve. And there's so much imagination when it comes to libraries now and what they put on and what they how they interact with the community. But if you've got no funding, you're just dying a slow death. What what do you feel is the future? Personally, I think they really have to diversify. They have to be versatile and they have to diversify. So it's it hasn't been the case for a long, 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 long time that a library is just a depository of books. And you have to get that out of your head. When you say the word library, you instantly think room of books. That is obviously the physical side of it. But so much more happens in the library, um, public libraries particularly. They And nowadays, of course, they are safe spaces, they're community hubs, they're places people go for advice. They're people that they are the last places yeah. you can go and not be expected to part with any money. Yeah. And that's Spend quite time. That's a very unique space on a high street to ha- yeah. so where you can go from cradle to grave. You're not expected to part with a penny to sort of travel. The world. And you can access the Internet and literature and all manner of other information and knowledge yeah. that you don't have to pay for. That's so civilised, isn't it? It is. And it is the mark of a civilization. Yeah. Yeah. And when... People or as one about... librarian, sorry, just to interrupt, said to me, it's our it's our greatest invention. It is yeah. what makes us human. And I think that's so true, isn't it? I think so. And I think it's very it's very easy to close a library down and you're not saving a great deal of money at all. Librarians aren't paid very much. The running costs are not overly, you know, it's not. You don't really save that much money. But what you lose is priceless. And to open a library again, is nigh on impossible yeah so I think it should be the last thing that goes but they do you know like I say they do have to think okay so we've got these we've got this space we need to use this for meetings community meetings clubs it needs to be a safe space that we open for certain demographics at certain times Mm. story time for children you know the summer reading scheme that they do every year is crucial keep children reading over the summer you know knitting clubs yeah yeah dementia clubs um author talks museums coming in and talking yeah and i like this new new thing that's emerging the library of things where people can go in and borrow a ladder or or bethany green you can go in and borrow footballs because they're right in a park so the kids come in and they borrow a football check it out go and have a game of kick about and then drop it back i think that's the future isn't it be offer, offering something much more in tune with what the demographic of the people outside on the streets I've, I visited I think it was Exeter Library and they do some incredible things they have library lates and so they have bands and bars and music and then they invite interactive theatre in and they have drag queen story time and <laughs> and this wonderful event that you can visit the the I think they call it this visit the stacks and they take people in and visit all the most precious and rare old books and it's sort of white glove experience so you really feel like you're getting immersed into the history of the place so I just that when I hear things like that that is so inventive and creative and and you go in and there's a a a coffee bar in there and there's lots of students in there I mean Exeter is a student town anyways it's quite buzzy but they seem to be doing such great things and that that library has such a such an atmosphere about it it's like going into a shopping centre or a bar. It feels buzzy and vibrant and well-loved and, and and a long way from this myth of libraries are quiet places. What advice would you give them to try and encourage that love of reading? I mean, it's, it's it can feel like quite a battle for some parents, I think. How do you go about that, tackling that? Well, it's not an easy, quick answer. So I'll give you I'll give you a few things that I I found that has, have helped. First off, children quite often start off loving reading and through primary school there's not usually an issue with most children they love reading and then you get to secondary school and it starts to drop off and it sometimes drops off a cliff for some children and yes that is a cause for concern but it is in many cases a natural thing and that in a lot of cases they come back to reading after after a bit of a gap I think the worst thing that parents can do is 
make a big issue of it and nag, I think one of the, a positive thing they could do is ensure that they have in their houses different means of literature, different bits of things that the children can pick up and read if they want. So magazines lying about, books lying about, show the children that you read. Quite often, if if parents don't read, the children are like, well, you don't read. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why are you making me read? They have to read for school a lot. And so a lot of children feel that they've, they're doing their reading. Um, don't make me read anymore. And so in that case, you need to kind of just be very relaxed about it don't make a big thing about it get them an audible subscription you know take on walks with them get them plugged into a story because reading and listening are different but they have the same effect on the brain so the children that we get onto audio we are very clear with them that they are not not reading they are getting the vocabulary they're getting that other world they're getting the empathy with the characters. They're getting the story. They're following it through. But it's just through their ears. I feel like we should move on to talk about your novel. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's many facets to you because obviously we've discussed your, your life as a librarian, but you have this whole other world or life as a novelist now as well. Your debut novel came out, um, Operation Moonlight, and that's actually how I found you. I saw you on social media. I thought, oh, that looks interesting. It's a wonderful cover. Um, and it's a brilliant, brilliant um piece of historical fiction so betty the heroine operation moonlight is this reclusive older lady isn't she hiding secrets from her past and in the second world war she was recruited into the clandestine special operations executive and i was interested to read on your website that she's inspired by your maternal grandmother also called betty is that right yeah, Betty Shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> so was Betty an name. SOE operative in the Second World War, or what do we know about um, her? I don't think she was. I don't think she was in the SOE, but she did something a bit mysterious during the war and wouldn't talk about it. She was an extraordinary influence on me, a, a big inspiration growing up. She died when my twins were born nearly 20 years ago now, so she's not with us anymore. But she was born in 1908 she survived two world wars she survived the 1918 flu epidemic which saw many of her family die she survived breast cancer in her 30s she survived a bigamist first husband oh tiny but just so stoic just kept going and wouldn't harp on about the, the past so unfortunately a lot of her past is unknown because it's, 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 I didn't really ask her enough as a as a kid. You don't. Who you does? Don't think, Who does? Do I could so think. easily make this podcast. I wish I'd asked yeah. because there are so many people who wish that they had asked their grandparents or the older generation more and and regret not having done so. But even if she, you had asked, do you think she would have told you? No, she didn't like to hark back. One of her, I mean, she died when she was I don't know ninety three or something. She was a good old age when she yeah, died. Yeah, she made fine age. And her her attitude and her outlook was so modern. You know, she would she would never say, oh, the good old days. Because to her, actually, they weren't the good old days. No, she um, lived through a lot of brutality, really. <laughs> illness, <laughs> epidemics. Yeah. yeah. So she, was, she lived in the moment and she looked to the future and she loved young people and she loved new things. And yes, but of course, Betty was also, the character of Betty was also an amalgamation of the 39 female agents of the SOE who I became a bit obsessed about, a bit obsessed with. I think you have to become <laughs> a little bit obsessed when you're researching. A little bit obsessed. Tell me about these 39, are we talking British female agents? Um, not wholly. Some were some were American, some were from New Zealand, Australian, I think. Um, so not all British, but they were all bilingual. Range in age from 19 to 51, from all different backgrounds. Uh, some of them had children, some of them were married, some of them were single. Some of them, uh, yeah, were, like I say, from 19 to 51. And they were just ordinary women, except they weren't ordinary. They really weren't ordinary because they ended up doing extraordinary things and I think to do what they did meant they weren't ordinary people but but to all intents and purposes they were. And what sort of things were they doing in occupied France? A lot of them worked as couriers which is basically messengers so they would take messages between the circuits in occupied countries um, which was a very dangerous job to do they would be making connections they would be slipping messages to people in shops or leaving them in 
walls for agents to come along and find. Some of the women were trained as wireless operators. So, um, for instance, there's a particular one called a uh, lady called Noor Inyat Khan, who was just 30 when she was she unfortunately died. She was murdered by the Gestapo, uh, by the Nazis. Did she end up in a concentration camp? Where, she did. Where... She did. She did end up in a concentration camp. But at one point, she was the only wireless operator in the whole of Paris. So she was wiring messages back to London about what was going on. She was the only one doing it um, because all the others had been caught or were, you know, for whatever reason, she ended up for a period of time being the only person. Um, and she was captured. She was tortured. She didn't give her didn't give the secrets away she escaped she was recaptured she was retortured she was taken to concentration camp and she was a she was then executed at the end and she was just 30 um the 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 risk that they took i can't even really begin to imagine it was really hard for me to imagine the risk that they were taking because you couldn't trust anybody absolutely no one there were collaborators everywhere um and you wouldn't recognize them their training was was as, as, as was as in depth as the government could make it, but it was woefully inadequate for when they actually got into the field and realised what they were up against. But in 1942, they had to make the the government had to make the really difficult and unique decision to recruit women for the first time ever as secret agents, simply because it was no longer safe for the men. The the, the Germans, the the Nazis, were scooping up all work age men that were on the street and taking them off for forced labor. So to be a man of a certain age, able-bodied, bumbling around, was to run the risk of being literally press ganged on mm -hmm. the street. So they, 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 that's why they recruited women because the women could then just infiltrate a community and go about their shopping and their washing and their trotting about with their basket on their arm or on their bicycle with their little basket on the bicycle and for for a little while they weren't really nobody could believe that a woman was a spy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. certainly not a trained spy who was trained to kill who was armed um who knew secrets who knew code who knew morse code who was you know nobody could believe that yeah it's groundbreaking and, yeah absolutely because i think I, mean, I believe there were some female spies during world war one but not to the extent of the like soe that. operations no. yeah how did you go about researching it lou what sources did you did you use because i'm presuming there's not a you know proliferation of f former female spies veterans around to talk is there oh there were there were lots of videos that I watched about with interviews of women who had been interviewed before they died. Not that many, but, you know, there were a few. I read upwards of 200 books on the war, the SOE, women in the war, the 1940s. Being a librarian is brilliant because I could get books. Because <laughs> uh, you're in a that great position no there. <laughs> it was simply the time to read them. But, yeah, I, I read about 200 books. I visited places. So I went to Arisag in Scotland. I met a man online. I, I Googled SOE expert and got this lovely guy called Henrik who lives up in Arisag in the northwest of Scotland, who's an SOE expert. And he gave me a whistle stop tour just before COVID lockdown, actually, in March. Of lucky to get in there. February 2020. He took me all around where the agents were trained up in northwest Scotland and told me all about all about that so I spoke to historians Dr Kate Vigers who is the country's leading expert on the female agents of the SOE I got her to fact check the manuscript she picked up lots and lots of little, oh, little tiny things that she said you know the general reader will probably miss this Lou but people who know their history will pull you up on this so just just look at this just look at this just look at this but you, what I love um, talking on the subject of research is you took it quite a step further, actually, didn't you? Because you did a parachute jump in <laughs> yes. order to put yourself into the shoes of your female operative. What? <laughs> that's that's commitment to research, I have to say. Tell us about that. Uh, I have a visceral fear of heights. I can't, I can't even climb ladders. It begs so, the question, how on earth did you throw yourself out of a plane? How did I do it? Well, well... <laughs> I knew that writing that chapter where she jumps out of the plane, I know I knew that to write it authentically, I had to know what it was like to have your legs dangling out of a plane at 15,000 feet with a parachute on your back. I just had to know, Kate. And I knew that the only way of doing that was to be to do it myself, to actually do it myself. And I, I kid you not, I barely slept for two weeks before the actual flight. 
I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I was a right, I was so emotional. I was crying at the drop of a hat. I was so terrified, I can't tell you. And the man who took me up, the nice guy, I forget his name now. The guy, I was obviously- Were well, you in another state by then, weren't him. you? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to pull the cord. He was doing all of that. No, yeah, yeah. I, he didn't, I don't think he quite understood the level of my terror. And I was trying to explain to him, you know, saying, oh, why are you doing this jump? Because everyone who he works with, obviously he's doing it for, for pleasure. For pleasure, for <laughs> the adrenaline, for it. the thrill seeking. Yeah, and I said to him, let's research for a novel. And I've got to know how my character feels. And But I, I have to tell you, I am so scared. I am liable to faint. I may faint. I have to warn you this. And he basically said to me, well, you, you can't. You just can't faint. Because Why? if you faint... It's an well, involuntary it's, reaction, it's, isn't it? You yeah. Can't control you it. You can't because you, you're going to end up being a weight, a, just a lump <laughs> on the front of me. Charming. You can't have that. He, he, he said it a bit more politely than that. But it that, that you know, clicked something in my brain. And I thought, he's right. I can't endanger his life. And so I've got to get my SHIT together. And But anyway, so very quickly, we, we did it. I did it. And what was interesting was at the point of which my legs are dangling out of the plane and we're about to go, and he's doing a countdown. I was interested to know what my body would do because what was Betty, what would Betty's body do? I thought, will I be crying? Will I be shaking uncontrollably? Will I be screaming? Don't, I can't do this. I can't do this. Will I have blacked out? Will I be sick? Will I wee myself? I wanted to know at yeah. that point of terror, because I honestly thought I'm going to die. That curiosity almost die. overcame the terror. Yeah. None of that happened. All that happened was the world contracted to almost like a black dot, just my head nothing else existed and I had my eyes tight closed for the first 10 or so seconds as we plummeted out of the plane I couldn't even open my eyes and then when the when the parachute deployed and we got sort of jerked up and we it arrested our fall he said to me open your eyes and he said welcome to my office he did his arm like that he said welcome to my office and below me was Salisbury Plain Stonehenge the sea Salisbury Cathedral and I was just speechless, breathless, and I was fine until I remembered that I was dangling from a harness at 10,000 feet. And then, of course, I'd feel sick again, but then I was fine again and I was like, looked at the view. So, yeah, I did nearly faint. I did. As we were coming down to land, we did nearly, I did nearly pass out, but luckily didn't, didn't quite. Um, and I would but never, ever do have, it again. Horrendous. You must have been euphoric when you landed and, you, and it was over, yeah, especially the build think, up to it. I did think this is a ridiculous thing to do. Human beings should not be throwing themselves out of planes. I am far too busy to die. <laughs> far too busy. <laughs> and the paperwork, you know. I love that these things are going through husband. your mind. Yeah. <laughs> the bureaucracy ridiculous. of my death. And your and library. I, your I lovely, wrote that Your chapter. lovely children's library. Yeah. What am I doing? Well, can but, I just say, I think that you're near, you know, the, the terrors that you put yourself through were completely worth it because that was my favourite chapter in the whole book. <laughs> I loved that where she was about to, you know, plunge herself out of the plane and you, and almost like you slowed the writing down. It was a real visceral sensory experience as she, and I was living it with her. So I, I have to say for all the terror that I know you undoubtedly went through, I think it was worth it because it came out in the writing. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> so Lou, t just tell me then, because we talked earlier about this wall breaking through. So we know, you know, how you, your inspiration behind the novel, how you set about researching it. How did you get published? In 2012, so we're talking, what, 12, nearly 12 years ago now, uh, I'd been doing all the secret writing, as I told you, but it was consuming me. Why do you refer to it as secret? I couldn't show it to anybody. I Why? couldn't show it to anybody. And I also couldn't write in front of anybody. It had to be done in private completely my life is not like that anymore I, no I'm sure you really schedules like won't allow it will it but no and people walk in people look at what I'm like I don't care anymore but in those days it was it was such a vulnerable thing such a private thing that I was writing not not anything you know not my life it was just no, no I get I, but just the very I mean, act of writing just the act of writing yeah nobody in my family did it you wrote as Stephen um King referring to him as we did earlier mm. he wrote in his memoir as if the door was shut yeah in the belief that no completely. one would ever read it completely yeah that's how I wrote my first novel but then in 2012 I'd I, I'd been banging on about 
wanting to write and my husband said look just do a course just get it out of your system do a course and I found the Faber on write a novel online course it was a six-month online course I couldn't go to London I had small children couldn't go to London so I had to do the online version and it was the cost of a family foreign holiday it was a lot of money but my husband bless him said look we'll scrape the money together do it get it out of your system woman so I did it loved it and it was the first time I'd ever shared my work with anybody and it was honestly when I write when I say this to people they go oh, yeah it was like getting my clothes off it was like taking my clothes off it was that scary and luckily the group that I was with and the tutors that we had were brilliant and were really nurturing and really constructive and I learned so much I thought at the end of that course that I was ready to start submitting to agents and publishers and of course I absolutely wasn't so for the next seven years I was rejected and rejected and rejected I had a very detailed spreadsheet I kept all the results that I've got um, you know some people asked for more some people didn't blah, blah 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 kept the spreadsheet seven years went by people had then realized I'd done the course and so I constantly got asked when's your book out have you written your book yet when are you being published in almost in a kind of it's never going to happen Lou so why are you even trying so in 2019 when my mum told me about this competition that penguin random house were running she told me about it i went thanks mum put it to one side and i thought as a last ditch attempt to get into publishing i'm going to enter this it was free to enter postal vote postal entry i didn't tell anybody i didn't even tell my husband i just trotted down to the post office and posted my first chapter and a synopsis in a brown envelope <laughs> I left it and that was in the June of 2019 and then I promptly forgot about it because I thought I'm never going to win this but I did think and I did know that somebody from the industry would read every single entry so my hope was that somebody might recognize a seed of promise and might might offer me representation I, I wanted an agent that's what I wanted how many agents had you approached by that point ah uh, I think uh, approaching 50 or upwards of 50 a lot and of course you know now knowing what I know now about how agents work I wasn't quite doing it right and I you know you need to be so specific yeah they're very specific on the way that you need to approach so yeah I've got all about it didn't hear anything till the October of that year when my now literary agent uh, Luigi Bonomi called me at work and he told me I'd been shortlisted from nearly 5,000 entries down to the last six and I had to sit down at that point. But then even then, I thought, I'm not going to win this. I might get runner-up. Runner-up was quite good. Runner-up was representation by him. Uh, but that was it. I thought, I'm not ever going to win this. And then after just over two weeks went by, and I got the phone call to say, you've won it. Mental. Did you faint then? If throwing... <laughs> not quite. But the you slightly not faint throwing yourself out of a plane. Slightly worrying thing was, and I, I thought, oh my God, I'd only written five chapters at this point. So I went back to the terms and conditions thinking, oh my God, <laughs> what if the terms and conditions had said, you have to have finished the book? Because I would have just died at that point. I was nowhere near finishing. <laughs> Luckily, it said, you don't need to have finished the book. Oh, phew. But yeah, so anyway. that's a phenomenal anyway, achievement, though, and it, and it just goes to show that there's no right or wrong route into entry into publishing. We all no. have a different experience, but I love hearing stories like you, where people have been rejected, you know, up to fifty times. So fifty agents saw that work and saw nothing in it, and yet here you are now, seven or how many years on, a published author with that novel under your belt. So I just think that's such an amazing story for people that are hoping to get published and, and are feeling dejected and without hope that it goes to show doesn't it persistence tenacity never give up I've got to ask I always ask three payout questions to all my interviewees so what was your favorite childhood book Uh, again difficult to answer that but if I had to say one I'd say Little Women oh that's exactly the answer I got from the author yesterday Oh, Natasha Lester, <laughs> who also loved Little Women. She credits uh, it with, with being a writer. So there you go. That's really interesting. Um, or Rebecca. Oh, I'm amazing. afraid. It's not very original, is it? But No, but those are, they are fantastic classics. There's really no doubt are. about it. I love Rebecca. It's one I of, completely escaped 
into those yes. books yeah That's... the minute the doors to Mandalay open you're there aren't you you're permit it gives you permission to switch off yeah so I'm afraid yeah. it has to be one of those two that's but... okay those are good answers and what's your favorite childhood library well, I say favorite you can't have a favorite childhood library but what what's the library that stands out to you that you most feel at home in and you most love I think it's mine <laughs> I think it's my school library well the way you described it I'm not surprised I do I feel so I'm so lucky it's like my little kingdom and it's just my 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 whole identity there it's like it's just everything yeah everything. your soul like your soul is in the stacks isn't it I can feel that yeah it really is uh Guildford Library will always hold a place in my heart because I did my work experience there but also I got most of my childhood books from there we didn't have books at home particularly I got a book in my stocking at Christmas <laughs> that was it that's <laughs> so um, all from the library my dad actually interestingly my dad was was effectively illiterate until his adulthood was he? Until, yeah, until well into his adulthood. And he used to tell us stories at night, but he would never read from a book. And it took me many, many years to realise that he was actually illiterate. And he taught himself to read at a much later date, at a later stage. And now we share books all the time. And we have a love of um, seafaring, hijinks on the seas, pirate stories, tales of survival, Arctic stories, all of that kind of thing. We both love, God knows why. And we swap books all the time now. But yeah, all through my childhood and all through my university years and up, up into my 20s, he he was, mum had to write checks for him. Yeah, he couldn't couldn't really read or write at all. That's so interesting. He should, I should interview him, actually. I think that would make a fascinating podcast to listen <laughs> about how you educate, how you teach yourself to, to read, especially just, at the age read. in life. Yeah, he just read and read. It would take him a year to read a book. He used to be really slow. I used to, Dad, have you finished the book yet? No, I'm just being very careful. I'm reading so, it very carefully. This is where you get your tenacity from then, <laughs> <laughs> clearly. <laughs> and last question, Lou, if you were sent off to a desert island with only one book, what would it be? I'm going to say Middle March because I haven't read it and it's a bit of a brick. But just recently, I've had three signs from the universe that I have to read this book. So a friend of mine had listened to a podcast with Patrick Ness, who'd said that Middlemarch was one of the top five books ever written and that everybody should read Middlemarch. So that was Patrick Ness saying it. Then I heard an interview with Barbara Kingsolver very recently, oh, yes. like last she week. Who just won the, the Yeah, she won prize. the Women's Prize. And she said, Middlemarch, you need to read Middlemarch. And then somebody, uh, something else, and I forget what it was, but there was a third, so things come in threes. And when, when I get three signs to do something, Kate, I it's tend to do the it. Universe had a third sign that's that told me I need to read Middlemarch so my answer to that is Middlemarch. Lou or shall I call you bibliotherapist author and librarian it's been such a privilege um having you on here I've absolutely loved chatting to you I could talk to you for so much longer um but I urge everyone to go out and buy Operation Moonlight and um follow you and look closely for your next novel thank you so much Thank you, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour and thank you. And good, well done with your book. And I loved the Little Wartime Library hugely. I wish I'd known about Bethnal Green Tube Station Library because I would have sent Betty there. <laughs> but I didn't. Maybe in the follow-up, <laughs> Betty can follow yeah. visit. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation, or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook or Instagram, details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.